I'm Joel Parker, and this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, April 12th, 2022. Coming up, part two of our interview with astronomer Dr. Emily Levesque about her book, The Last Stargazers, the enduring story of astronomy's vanishing explorers. Dr. Levesque provides a peek into the life of an observational astronomer and the story of the people who see beyond the stars. For millennia, humans have gazed up at night in wonder and amazement, creating stories about the mysteries of those beautiful and sometimes surprising glowing occupants of the sky and using them to track the seasons. Astronomy is considered the oldest science, with records of astronomical measurements made in ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia 5,000 years ago, and even 2,000 years before that, nomadic people living on the African savanna at a place called Napta Playa created what is possibly Earth's oldest astronomical observatory and calendar, a circle of stones long before Stonehenge that might have been used to track the timing of summer solstice and the arrival of monsoons. The sky that we see today has not changed that much since then, but how we look at the sky has changed. Although many of us still look up like our ancestors did in awe and inspired by the night sky, the modern scientific study of the sky is done by astronomers with some of the most complex scientific instruments ever created. So who are these people whose job it is to study the universe and try to unravel its mysteries? That is the world that Dr. Emily Levesque shares with us in her book, The Last Stargazers, The Enduring Story of Astronomy's Vanishing Explorers. Dr. Levesque is a professor at the University of Washington in Seattle. Her research is focused on understanding how the most massive stars in the universe evolve and die. She has observed on many of the planet's largest telescopes and flown over the Antarctic stratosphere in an experimental aircraft for her research. Last week, in part one of this interview, Dr. Levesque talked about what it is like to be a professional astronomer and some of the unusual aspects and quirks of observing with highly sophisticated scientific instruments in very remote and difficult locations. You can hear that first part of the interview on our website, howonearthradio.org. Today, in the second part of the interview, Dr. Levesque joins us on How on Earth to talk about some of those stories from these sometimes nomadic scientists and a glimpse into what the future holds for astronomy. Are we really coming to the end of the last stargazers? One of the things I really like about astronomy is it's really tied into its history, not just in the stories, but sometimes just even the terminology that's used or the weird classification order of stars or just things like that. 
a great part of your book is bringing forward a lot of the stories that come out from astronomers past and present about things that have happened, good and bad, at the observatory. Do you have any particular favorite stories that you have heard or perhaps experienced yourself? I think that one of my favorite stories that I heard, and it's more a class of story, is I spoke to colleagues who had been observing for decades in some cases, and they described observing in the era before we had digital cameras and digital pictures. And nowadays, all of our data is digital. But they were describing an earlier era when telescopes would take photographs by storing images on glass plates. They were these thin sheets of glass that were chemically treated to darken when they were exposed to light. And I had so many colleagues tell me stories of getting crates of plates delivered from Kodak and pulling out these sheets of glass in the dark and carefully slicing the plates down to the size that would fit in their telescope camera in the dark. People would mime slicing them and trying not to catch a finger along the way. They would describe baking the plates or freezing them or even rubbing lemon juice on them to make them as sensitive to light as possible because the more they responded to light, the dimmer of an object you could photograph. They would then describe loading these plates into a telescope's camera and sitting alongside the camera, sometimes sitting high inside a telescope for an entire night. Actually inside the telescope. Actually inside the telescope, high in the air, because they would have to sit next to the camera that was placed in a lot of cases high above the telescope's main mirror. So they would have a night assistant working with them to steer the telescope They would be sitting up there with a box of plates, shivering in a lot of cases because cold winter nights are the best nights to observe, loading plates in and out and then developing them in a dark room. And all of the work that they described sounded exhausting and arduous. Like now when I take data, I don't even have to click save. The the digital data will get stored in a database or stored on the cloud and I can just download it later. But they all described these memories fondly. I don't think anybody wanted to go back to an era of glass plates and everybody appreciates the science gains that come with using digital data, but everybody's favorite memories were riding in a telescope (laughs) and dealing with these plates or developing one for hours after you're done observing when you're just exhausted, but then realizing that you've seen something incredible And I mean, we made some of the most groundbreaking astronomy discoveries of the century using glass plates. So getting to tell those stories and getting to write down what that era of astronomy was like and just how impactful it was, was one of my favorite things to put in the book. And now you have computers that will save it for you so you don't forget at 3.30 in the morning to hit save on that image. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It's it's so different. Even working on images now, if I'm working on a digital image, I want to try processing it in a particular way. I copy paste it. And a lot of the glass plates that astronomers would leave in the mountain with were one of a kind. And I heard stories of driving down this bumpy mountain road with a rattling box of plates next to you in the passenger seat, kind of casting at glances going, oh, God, don't break because of something snapped. That was, you know, your PhD thesis or some critical new discovery that would be in pieces on the floor of the car. And (laughs) it's really changed the way that we can do science. You really had the opportunity in your book at a key time when there were still astronomers around who really reached back to 
that history of astronomy in the grand days, as you might say, with Edwin Hubble and people like that. But you mentioned one fellow in particular, George Wallerstein, who had that connection between historic and modern astronomy. And he was at uh, your university, University of Washington in Seattle, right? Yes, George Wallerstein actually founded the University of Washington Astronomy Department. And I was so lucky to know and work with him and to get an hour and a half of interview time with him for this book. And he told me that he had observed for 30 years with glass plates and then for 30 years with digital imaging. And he had really experienced this complete tour of how astronomy had evolved. And he had been a brilliant observer in the days of glass plates and was a brilliant observer through his entire career using digital data. And I liked demonstrating him as an example, one, because he has had just a fascinating career and we could fill hours just telling the stories of what George has done and the amazing scientific contributions he made to understanding how stars work. But he really was a great example of astronomers embracing the new ways that we do science that you might expect to run into some Luddites in astronomy who say, well, I remember back when this was real science and we processed the plates by hand. And many astronomers have eagerly embraced what new technology can show us. And this evolution is still happening today. But astronomers are, for the most part, careful to make sure that we retain the care and knowledge that makes this research so valuable, but doing that while really diving full on into whatever new technology can give us, whether it's artificial intelligence or amazing levels of automation or really groundbreaking new digital detectors on telescopes, we know that it makes the science better. And that was something that George absolutely embraced and that I still see in a lot of my colleagues today. Are there any other people in astronomy past or present that really stand out for you, either just interesting people or emblematic of kind of what astronomy is? I I enjoyed talking to so many of the people that I interviewed in my book. Um, one person who I sadly was not able to interview, but I heard stories about her from a number of people was Vera Rubin. And Vera Rubin was one of a generation of women astronomers. And I did talk to several others. Um, one great example is Anne Bozgard, who was my one of my research advisors at the University of Hawaii. But these were all women who were doing really groundbreaking astronomy research at a time when barriers were really put in place to prevent women from being productive scientists. One great example is that I described applying for time on a telescope and being assigned a night. And when you're assigned a night like that, you're the principal investigator on that telescope. And women for decades were not allowed to be principal investigators at telescopes. They weren't even allowed to stay in the dormitory facilities on mountains where the telescopes were operated. And as is true again and again throughout history, women did this. They stayed on the mountain and figured out their own solution. And they operated these telescopes and made amazing discoveries. They just had a lot of extra barriers put in their path. So Vera Rubin became the first woman to be the lead investigator at one of the biggest and best telescopes in the world at the time, which was the 200-inch telescope in California. And she is famous now as the discoverer of dark matter. But I heard stories about her as an observer and just the genius observer that she was and how amazing she was at using telescopes. And you talked about solutions to telescopes happening 
on the fly, combining really cutting edge technology with whatever we can put together on short notice. I remembered hearing a story about Vera Rubin sitting at a telescope and operating it when it broke such that the telescope couldn't be pointed. It was effectively stuck pointed straight up. The telescope was open, the sky was clear, but they couldn't move the telescope, which is usually crucial. You have to point to the exact star or galaxy or object that you want to study. And she, unperturbed, on the fly, immediately did the math. And this was this would be hard today. It was incredibly hard before these sort of computational tools we have now. She did the math to figure out what would be passing over the telescope and kept observing all night, getting beautiful observations of whatever happened to be overhead. And that is unimaginably difficult and challenging. I think many very talented observers would have just called it a night. So hearing stories about the science that she did and the amazing discoveries she made, and at the same time, the challenges she was dealing with was really interesting context for the book. That was a really interesting chapter that you had about that history of astronomy. The dorms were called the monastery, and, and it yes. was not an inviting place for women, even though women have a long history of contribution to astronomy as calculators and observers. From your perspective now and the people you've talked to, how do you feel astronomy is now as a science as far as diversity for women and others? I think astronomy has improved in a lot of ways. I think what's more important is that astronomy as a field is recognizing that this is important. I think this is becoming clearer to more and more people every day. Um, moving from the era when Vera Rubin was making some of the most brilliant discoveries in the history of the field to today, um, in 2017, something like 40% of the PhDs in astronomy were awarded to women. And it's becoming a field where it is more and more common to have women as tenured professors like me or as leaders of the American Astronomical Society as chairs of departments. At the same time, in 2017, when those 40% of PhDs went to women, 4% of those went to Hispanic women and 2% went to African American women. So the field is not entirely equitable yet. There are still barriers in place for people entering astronomy to people staying in astronomy to being supported in the field and wanting to turn around and then continue this effort, make the field as equitable as possible. But what I find heartening is that people are starting to realize that it's good for astronomers and for the humans in the field and good for the science to make this as open a field as possible. There's there's a whole lot of universe. We really shouldn't be putting barriers in place to anybody who wants to help us answer our questions about it. Talking about Vera Rubin, her memory is going to be carried on and people will remember and look back and see about her for many reasons, including there is now a new facility named after her that really is a new style, a new era in astronomy. Do you want to talk about that? Yes, so this is the Vera Rubin Observatory, and it is one of the telescopes that sticks in my mind as a really new generation of telescope and a really astonishing example of what technology can do for our science. So Rubin Observatory is currently under construction in Chile, and it is going to, once it turns on and starts operating, have this very simple but amazing job. It's going to take photographs of the southern sky every few nights 
over and over again for 10 years. And what this gives us in the end is a decade-long movie of the night sky. And that might not sound like an obvious scientific gain to some people because we're used to the sky looking kind of the same. You might see different constellations in the summer versus the winter, but night by night when you look up, you see the same stars and the same constellations in the same place. And that's just because of the limitations of our eyes. In truth, the sky is constantly changing and a telescope as powerful as the Vera Rubin Observatory will set. They'll see stars that get brighter and dimmer. They'll see the flash of a supernova that then fades away. They'll spot a tiny little asteroid sort of scooting across the sky, including asteroids that might get a little uncomfortably close to Earth. So the discoveries made possible by a telescope like this are incredible, but the way it works is really different because it's going to follow this survey pattern of studying the night sky. Now, there are going to be astronomers helping to run it, helping to modify its plan and check on its progress, but it won't be a telescope where somebody submits a proposal and gets a night on Rubin and travels to Rubin and operates Rubin. We won't even be assigned a night and run Rubin from our laptop. The Rubin Observatory will, for the most part, have a preset plan or a set of criteria for what it observes, and those of us working with the data will simply get the chance to download what it observed and look at what it found. It's a very different type of science, and it's a new degree of science. The number of things that it's going to discover are incredible. Right now, we discover hundreds of supernovae, so exploding and like dying stars. We discover hundreds of those in a year, and Rubin will discover thousands of those in a night. The scale of astronomy is just going to change radically. But those discoveries will be uniquely possible with Rubin, and then following them up, we will still need a telescope that we can go to or run from our laptops or that we can point over there because we're curious about what that one weird thing is. And we really need this mix of different types of telescopes going forward to do our science. So I love the way Rubin Observatory is using new technology to discover new things. And I can't wait to see how it complements the other type of observing that we already have. We're going to need lots and lots more astronomers in the field to clear away the dirt to find the bones out of the terabytes and terabytes of bones that Vera Rubin is going to find. I regularly hear colleagues now throwing around the term petabytes, and it just blows my mind. Um, I visited Rubin Observatory during its construction, and a big part of my visit was talking about, of all things, the internet on the mountain because they have to transmit such tremendous amounts of data from a remote mountaintop in Chile to servers and central places where astronomers all over the planet can access it. So the sheer infrastructure accomplishments of it are amazing. Are you still able to go observing yourself? How do you fit that in with your responsibilities of being a professor and everything? I haven't gotten the chance to go to a telescope in the past couple of years, but that's largely been because of the pandemic. Um, I was able to remotely observe at an observatory in Chile, Las Campanas Observatory, that I adore. It's one of my favorite places to observe. And we remotely ran the telescope last December, which that observatory didn't used to do before COVID. Um, I am looking forward to when I can go back to a, to a mountain. Um, it's a built-in part of an astronomer's job that you occasionally fly halfway around the world and go to a telescope for one night or a few nights to gather some data. It's an amazing experience that I never want to lose. But I am also now teaching students to do that or 
going with students on some of these observing runs or teaching them how to operate telescopes remotely. So as the field evolves, I think the way that we spend our time and the skills that we learn evolve. What we want to do is keep in mind that we want to understand how telescopes work, how we run them, along with running them remotely so that we really can still keep the breadth of the science that we're doing in mind. Uh, retain the knowledge, pass it exactly. along. The title of your book, The Last Stargazers. What are we coming to the end of that might mean the end of these stargazers? Yes. So I've had a lot of people ask me about the title and ask me if it's meant to be depressing or if it's suggesting the end of an era or the loss of interest in stargazing. And it's none of these things. So the title is in part a reference to the way that technology is changing astronomy and the role that astronomers play in our own observations, because we used to be at the telescope every night. We used to be literally riding in the telescope and handling the pictures that the telescope took one by one with our bare hands. And today we might observe from a remote control room, or we might observe from our laptops, or we might download data and not be part of the observing process at all. And I did want to write books retaining stories from the more Indiana Jones adventure era of astronomy. It's an era that we're not getting back, but it's such a wonderful and quirky little world of scientific research that I really did want those stories preserved. I also did want the title to be a bit of a challenge to people because plenty of us still stargaze every day. Some of us do it for our job. Some of us just do it for the pleasure of it. And we certainly have no shortage of young people interested in science and interested in space. At the University of Washington, um, at the University of Colorado, we have record-setting numbers of undergraduate majors in astronomy, of students who want to pursue PhDs. And I think keeping up the recognition and use of that interest is great because as as the technology improves, our scientific capabilities improve along with it. And we want to stay mindful of keeping the curiosity and the sort of human ability to ask questions or have new ideas. We want to keep, we, we want that to keep pace with the technology. And we want the stargazing curiosity to keep up with the power of the telescopes that we're building. And we want as many of these new excited stargazers to stay in the field as possible. We don't want any of them to be the last stargazers. That leads to my final question, which also is one of the final questions in your book. Why? You say, why do we as individuals decide to study astronomy? Why is it worth the money? And why should humanity study astronomy? Why we should study astronomy is a question I think every astronomer has gotten and had to answer at some point in our careers. And I think there are a couple of answers. One is that we never know where scientific inquiry might lead. We never know what discovery we make in deep space today could have very tangible, real implications tomorrow. And we don't know what big questions we aren't even asking about our universe but we should, whether it's figuring out how the universe began, figuring out the energy that powers stars, or finding intelligent life elsewhere in the universe and having a conversation with it, which by the way, the first thing we will have in common is our universe. And the first thing we might wanna talk about is astronomy. Any of these discoveries would be really groundbreaking for humanity and it's worth investing the effort in, even if we don't immediately see the tangible benefit of where it leads. 
I also know that astronomy is deeply inspirational to a lot of people. Um, I've heard it described as a gateway science. So people will get enraptured by the night sky and start paying attention in science class and then go on to become doctors and epidemiologists because they got this window into how cool science could be. And finally, personally, I think the best explanation I can give is because you have to, because it's there. I can't explain why I've always been curious about science and why I've always been curious about space, but it's as much a part of me as anything else. And I think a lot of astronomers that I interviewed for The Last Stargazers gave very similar answers. You ask, why do we do this? And the answer just comes back, we have to. The universe is there. There's so much we don't know. I'm so fascinated by it. I have the ability to answer these enormous questions. How can we not? So I think that there is a very deep human nature in there too. We all ask questions about where we came from, where we're going, and are we alone? And being able to even get a little piece of answer is very, very worth it. Well, thank you for preserving some of those stories and people and answers and questions in your yeah. book, The Last Stargazers. And thank you very much for being on the show, Emily. Thank you so much for having me. That was Dr. Emily Levesque talking about her book, The Last Stargazers, the enduring story of astronomy's vanishing explorers. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. This week's show was produced and engineered by yours truly, Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KJNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker.